and welcome to this week's Invisible Not Broken. I am so sorry if you guys are waiting for our usual release date. I got really sick and normal, regular person sick, like with the flu. So forgive. This is the best my voice is going to be. Forgive my dogs for being little brats and barking right when I press record. It's just going to be one of those days. Okay, so this week... I talked to the author of You're Not Your Diagnosis, Lynn Thompson, about her, and I'm going to screw this up so bad, so please, again, I'm just going to keep asking for your forgiveness today. Um, Polycythemia vera. It's a blood disorder, and after six months of doing a chronic illness podcast, I had never heard of this before. So this is a really fun um, interview that I got to learn so much about. She absolutely could be a vampire's dream. Her blood does not seem to have a switch off for the platelets. Uh, we found out all about our um, how you can get a diagnosis from pre-ops. That's an interesting little story. I uh, had a great chat about blind dates with doctors. They never look like they do on Grey's Anatomy, and that is not a romance thing. It just really does feel like you're always being set up with new doctors, and it has the same sort of nerves when you walk in. Um, the Inquisition can learn a thing or two from medical tests. And these are some very wasteful vampires. They take a whole lot of extra blood and throw it away. Uh, we had a really great talk about who you are before illness. And um, that's not really the same person you end up afterwards. And it can be a lot to try to pull apart which one is still you or is the original you. It gets very esoteric. <laughs> Um, also had a little bit of a discussion about what it's like to be wrongly diagnosed as something that could be possibly fatal. Um, had a wonderful talk, and I'm so grateful that she was so willing to open up and discuss this, but a real talk about dealing with depression and loss. Um, and we also had a lot in common with our master's degrees and um, our, or I think she was going for a PhD, but uh, academia and uh, the way out of adulting, and a huge thank you to all of the moms of chronically ill adults and everything they do. Um, oh, huh, my personal favorite of this entire discussion was the time cost of having a chronic illness. Uh, it's amazing how much time and money that costs. I'm going to stop talking before I start coughing, and thank you so much. I hope you enjoy this interview, and please check out Lynn's book, You Are Not Your Diagnosis. Hello, everyone. This is Invisible Not Broken, and today I am talking to Lynn, and she has, um, I'm sorry, we just went over this name, and my brain stopped. What, can you please list what you have? And Polycythemia vera. It's a blood disorder. Thank you, Lynn. I need more coffee today. It's becoming painfully obvious how under-caffeinated I am this morning. <laughs> so, and it's Friday, so... It, it's, we're recording this on a Friday morning, and um, yeah, I needed at least three cups this morning. So if you could tell us, because I have never heard of your disorder. I, I'm amazed every time I talk to someone who I have not heard about the, their, their thing, but I honestly don't understand any more than what I was able to grab off the Mayo Clinic website. Sure. So um, polycythemia vera is, again, a blood disorder. And basically, the way a doctor explained it to me simply <laughs> was it's kind of like the off switch is broken to tell all of the blood cells that there's enough of them. So my body makes too many red cells, too many white cells, and too many platelets. So it's kind of like if you had a light switch that like kind of regulates something and says, there's enough in here, that's broken. And the body just keeps like, here, have some some more, have some more, have some more. I, I just want to give your doctor huge props for being able to break something down and explain it in a way that's understandable. That's... I 
I thought that was a brilliant explanation, really, of being able to actually say like something in your life where you have like a light switch, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I get that. It's not like and then there's a scientific thing. <laughs> I mean, I might have him come over just to explain everything from here on out. <laughs> yeah. When you find a doctor like that, it's definitely very helpful because there's so many that talk to you like you should understand everything in scientific jargon and you don't have their medical training, so. I mean, to be fair, if you have a chronic illness, by the time you get a diagnosis, I feel like you should actually have credits towards your becoming a doctor, but. I would totally agree with that, for sure. So I understand that your body is not able to shut off the platelets. What does that cause? What are the symptoms? What, what actually is the result of that happening? So the way it first manifested for me was when I was 25 and I actually clotted off the portal veins of the liver. So those are the veins that actually drain out of the liver and everything was like backing up in the liver because the blood was clotted off there. So it it typically causes clots in different areas of the body. That sounds phenomenally dangerous what were the yes definitely like I'm thinking liver and being 25 and I'm going to thinking what I was like at 25 and how sad my liver was at that time what what was the actual symptoms what did it feel like that you knew you needed to go see a doctor well, my story is kind of interesting because I actually, when um, things started happening, I didn't realize things were happening, but I had actually scheduled elective surgery. So I was supposed to be having a breast reduction. And when I did all of the pre-op blood work, the surgeon called me the night before my surgery and he said, there's something really weird looking in your blood. Like, you know, I, I don't know what's going on with you, but like, we can't do your surgery. And so I was, it was very jarring because I thought, you know, I'm healthy, I'm going to have the surgery. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm kind of thrown down this, this rabbit hole. Um, but within about, let's say a week or so, I started to have all of this fluid accumulation because my liver wasn't doing what it needed to do. And uh, by the time I was in the hospital in San Francisco, I looked like I was about six months pregnant because I had all this fluid in my belly. Wow. <laughs> and people, would, people, there were times when that was happening that people would say to me, like, when are you due? And I'm like, I'm not pregnant. Okay, first off, a huge just like um, information for anyone listening to this podcast, and we're going to help you out. Unless a woman is being wheeled into labor and delivery with a baby actively coming out of her body, do not ask if a woman's pregnant. Do not <laughs> congratulate her unless she says that she is before you say anything. That is my tip from me to you, everyone. <laughs> oh my Brilliant God. Tip. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, there's no way that's going to go right if they are wrong. There's no backtracking and backpedaling on that comment. <laughs> It was very, very awkward when that would happen, you know, because they're like, I'm not pregnant. I have a (laughs) condition. Okay, so you go in to get a breast reduction, which I'm guessing you looked forward to for a very long time. I had one done, I think, at almost the same age, and I had been desperate for it for like 10 years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the night before, after you've like psyched yourself up, they call and they don't even give you a diagnosis of what's wrong. They're just telling you, they're saying so wrong, we can't actually do the surgery. Yes. Did they give you any way to follow up on it? Did they tell you, like, what kind of doctor to see? He told me to just go see my primary doctor as a starting point because, you know, he's like, I'm a plastic surgeon. (laughs) It's not, you know, I I know something's wrong and I can't operate on you, but I don't know what's wrong with you. 
And so when you went to your doctor, how, how did this whole little journey go? It, from I was reading through what you had written to me, and you were in graduate school. Is that correct at the time? Yeah, I was in graduate school. I was pursuing a, a PhD in history, thought I wanted to be a professor, and and I was miserable at that time. Like, it wasn't the right fit for me, but I kept going and going and going through this program, and then I had this kind of big detour in my path, and in this process, I went to the primary doctor, and he did more blood tests because, of course, that's what they do is tests <laughs> to try and figure out what's vampires. going on. Vampires. They are vampires. <laughs> exactly. Take all the blood. <laughs> Take all the blood. <laughs> and uh, next thing I know, like, he was like, okay, we did all these blood tests. Like, let's go. You go home, and we'll wait, you know, to get the results. And I get this phone call. I don't remember if it was that day or the next day from this doctor who I had never heard of. And he's like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, uh, other than the fact that some strange doctor is <laughs> calling me, I feel okay. And he said, you know, well, that's good that you don't feel any symptoms right now. If that continues to be to the case, you can stay home tonight and check into the hospital tomorrow morning. That's and- not alarming or anything. <laughs> No, and I'm like, um, what should I be looking for? Because, you know, like, are my toenails going to fall off? Like, you know, like, am I going to explode? Like, what, you know, I mean, when when you don't know what's wrong, you're like, what symptoms should I be <laughs> looking for? So I remember it was very strange spending that night, like, just kind of like, um, is there anything weird going on? You know, continually checking in my body, like... I don't know. Are my fingers turning purple? <laughs> like, like, what's happening? What does imminent death look like? Give me the like red. Exactly. Or you know, it's like I don't know. Like I don't know how serious this is, but I'm assuming since he wants to admit me to the hospital the next day, like, okay, we're talking about something that's that's not good. And did you live alone at that time, or were you? I did live alone, but luckily my mom had come in to be with me because I needed somebody to care for me because of the surgery. So she was there with me. And I remember it was just kind of this weird night of like we were watching TV, but both of us were on edge because it's like, what's wrong with me? Why do I have to, you know, go to the hospital and check in tomorrow? What's going to happen? I, you know, first off, a huge Huge props to all of the moms handling chronically ill adults. I mean, I yes. wow, I'm so um, in awe and amazed and grateful that my mom does that. Yes. But how terrifying for both of you. Like, no one can worry like a mom. Like Exactly. And my mom is, I, I say I come from a long line of warriors on my mom's side. So it's like, yeah, it was, we were both pretty stressed out. So did you, what were the symptoms at that time? Was that when your stomach was swelling or? No, at that point I didn't have any symptoms. I was like, I guess I'm okay. And then the <laughs> next morning I went to the hospital and, you know, they were like, okay, well, here's your hospital room. And I'm like, okay, I wow. don't know what's going on here. This is really, you know, like most of the time when you're admitted to the hospital, it's like you've been in an accident and you're having surgery. Like, you know, what's, what's going on. And this was like, I don't know why I'm being admitted to a hospital. That is such a Kafka-esque sort of moment of like, because you're right. Like, that's the thing that we talk a lot about on this podcast is the dividing line between healthy world and sick world. And mm-hmm. a lot of us, it's a, it's a slow descent into sick world. But for someone like you, that sounds like a very quick um, 
a shortcut down the rabbit hole to from I know you go to the hospital if you get in a car accident to well here's my room now yeah exactly it was like why am I here and I knew I was gonna meet this doctor who had called me but I'm like I don't know you know he said he was a gastroenterologist and that was all I knew I was like I don't know you know like what what does that mean? Do I have something going on with my stomach or, you know, my digestive system or what does it all mean? That sounds like the worst blind date ever. <laughs> yeah, it, it pretty much was, you know, and then there were uh, there was another blind date in the process with this hematologist who came in and, and was trying to figure out what was the cause of when they figured out that I had this clot. And that was probably a worse blinded he was horrible he was he was one of the worst doctors I've ever experienced and they never look like they do on Grey's Anatomy no uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh and the bedside manner is definitely not not usually there I mean no he had he did not have a good bedside manner he did a bone marrow biopsy on me and oh my god would you like to explain to anyone who has never had this done before what's involved in a bone marrow biopsy? It's still, like right now, literally, I my body still reacts to thinking <laughs> about it. It's, it is very, very painful. Basically, they kind of drill in through like your hip or through your pelvis to get to the bone marrow, which is like within your bone. Yeah. And you're not asleep during that. That oh, no, no yeah. you, you wish that you were <laughs> during that, but you are not. And I remember he told me, you know, he's like, oh, you're just going to feel a little bit of pressure. I'm just going to numb the area with a little local injection. And I was like, OK. And what followed was not just a little bit of pressure. Like it was excruciatingly painful. Uh, anytime the word drill is there. The slight pressure does not belong in the same sentence. No, it really doesn't. And I, I remember afterwards thinking, what the, like, <laughs> did he actually have one of these done on him? Because if he had, he would not describe it as just a little bit of pressure. So you're in the hospital. You have a blood clot that's cutting off your liver. And what was next? How did they figure out what this, this disorder was? Well, they were actually, like, the gastroenterologist was fairly sure, like, what had happened in terms of the clot, and he gave me a name for that, which was called Bud Chiari syndrome, and he's like, there's a couple different things that could cause this, and so that was more the mystery of, like, that was why they needed the bone marrow biopsy to figure out, like, what was the underlying reason that I had this clot, And then they also had to do something because obviously clotted off veins that drain your liver. You can't survive with that continuing on. You need your liver to actually function. Not unless you like having marigold colored skin. Yeah, and and probably exploding from all of the fluid. That That too. (laughs) That your body, you know, I was like, it was not fun being all swollen up with all of that liquid for sure. Um, so we kind of had that process of figuring out like, what's, why did I develop this clot? And, and actually that first bone marrow biopsy, I couldn't tolerate it. Like I, I screamed and I could not hold still because it was so agonizing. So he never even got a sample the first time. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So, what is like a daily life with your disorder like? Do you have? I actually like I have no concept of what this is. Is this a manageable disorder? Is it something that affects every day of your life? Is it something that has flares? Um, it's definitely for me at least. It's pretty manageable. I have to take a blood thinner just to make sure that I don't develop any more clots. So you know that kind of has its own little. Like, you have to make sure that you eat a certain way in terms of vitamin K content and, you know, not, like, all of a sudden eating a huge salad one day and then not eating salad. And, then, you know, it's – that's kind of a pain, but it's manageable. And then I also take another medication that helps to keep all of the, the red cells and the white cells and the platelets from over-generating. So it's mostly medication, and then um, they also do what they call a, th a therapeutic phlebotomy, which is basically almost like donating blood, but your blood doesn't get used for anything. It just gets thrown away. Oh, how sad. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's very sad because it's like my blood is so rich in all of these things, and there, a lot of times it's done, you know, at a hematologist's office where people are getting infusions of platelets and things like that. And it's like, I have all these platelets, and nobody can use them. Um, it's almost like the breast reduction. When I had mine, all of my friends were like, "I'll take those." I'm like, no, exactly. Sorry, exactly. they're not for they're not for transfer. No, unfortunately, not. You know, it just winds up in you know the medical waste bin, and, and it doesn't get used for anything. So you know, it, it, managing it is kind of blood tests and medications and. And usually I can tell kind of when my count is getting a little bit higher, I tend to feel a little more tired. It's like, okay, it's probably about time to go visit my local vampire <laughs> and have them take a bag of blood off and throw it away. So when all this happened, you were, I mean, 25 is pretty young and that's, uh, it's that because you didn't just get the diagnosis, I'm guessing. This probably was like a while of going to doctors and having loads of tests. How'd this affect your social life and your school life? Um, well, social life definitely felt like, I think one of the biggest things for me was I felt like it became my identity. Um, very quickly, like all my friends knew, you know, that I had been in the hospital and all these things were going on. And then every time like people would call or they would come over to visit, they were like, how are you feeling? <laughs> That's such a and loaded question. Exactly. You know, and it was sort of like, it just felt like it consumed everything in my life instead of, you know, like, I'm just who I was before all of this happened. And I didn't particularly, I've always been sort of private, I've become less so just because I feel like sharing my message and my story is important. But at that time, I was like, I don't want to talk about my health problems all the time to everybody. So um, it's such a weird thing because it does it does sink into a part of your personality being sick, and it's this struggle of which part is still me and which part's the the disorder. Yep. Yeah. It feels like it really can become who you are. You know, like without you even I, I describe that in the book that I'm writing. It's like it becomes who you are without you even choosing that. Yeah. There's no permission asked. Now you are writing a book, and what is that book called? It's called You Are Not Your Diagnosis. I love that title so much. And I'm linking, um, I believe you have a webpage set up for for this. And I'm linking yes. that in the show notes. So please take a look and sign up for her um, n newsletter and notifications for when this book comes out. But let tell me what the, the book is about. What What is this? 
Sure. The book is partly my story. So I, I actually take you through more in detail what happened when I was 25, which side note, I actually was given, I was not diagnosed at that time with the polycythemia vera. I was diagnosed with leukemia, which was a misdiagnosis. Okay. We need to head back to that one. So Remind me to come back to that one. <laughs> little mental note. We'll come back to that, but I'll, I'll finish just with a little quick overview of the book. So it's it's my story of going through this process, and then after kind of going through all of the story and then finding out the correct diagnosis, I really reflect on kind of what I learned through this whole process about kind of how diagnosis becomes your identity. Um, kind of some of the downfalls of the Western medical system um, from my own personal experience and just what I've observed. And, and then I talk about kind of what I learned about alternative medicine and other approaches to healing, because that's something I'm really passionate about as well. Now, I don't want you to just like spoil people reading the book, but there's a lot to unpack there that I'd love to talk about. But if I, I ask too many questions and you, you want me to back off, just tell me to. Um, I'm very interested in a lot of sides of the other sides of healing for chronic disorders, but I'm also very aware that they're very expensive, and a lot of them aren't covered by insurance. Did, was that a problem for you, or did, were you able to find ways to handle that? Um, yeah, it is really unfortunate that a lot of it isn't covered by insurance. Um, there were a lot of things that I, I paid for out of pocket or really my, my parents helped pay for out of pocket. So I was in a way fortunate that I had the resources to do that. But it, it really is very sad because a lot of people it's like, and I encounter this in working with, you know, potential clients, like when people find out something's not covered by insurance, sometimes they just can't do it. Because, you know, sometimes we're on a limited income and, and maybe we're not working. And if you can't get it paid for, you know, and just pay a copay, what can you do? And what kind of treatments were you able to find that did help with your condition? So the first thing that I started out with was um, traditional biofeedback therapy. And so kind of being hook up, hooked up to equipment and learning how to kind of self-regulate my anxiety because I had a whole lot of that from this whole process. Oh, I, I can't imagine how any of this was anxiety inducing. My God. <laughs> exactly. Going to go in for a breast reduction, all of a sudden you're set on the spiral of some very painful tests and a leukemia diagnosis that was false. I'm, I'm gathering from what you were telling me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was. So I had a lot of just overwhelm and anxiety and just feeling like, you know, my life was just kind of spiraling in a direction. And I'd actually encountered biofeedback when I was 12 and I got really bad migraine headaches and it kind of had helped me at that time. So I was like, well, maybe it'll help with this. And it really, it did. It gave me kind of more control over how I was feeling and, and my anxiety and all the symptoms that went with that anxiety. So that was kind of where I started. And then I started just exploring. I, I saw just a regular therapist, a counselor to help me process a lot of my emotional trauma from all of this. Now, being 25 is pretty emotionally traumatic anyway, and it feels very spirally. Adding this on must have been just insane. It was very insane. And actually, I didn't start the therapy till about a year and a half in 
when my my best friend actually passed away a year after I was diagnosed. Oh my god. So that was sort of what I view as really my low point in this whole story was when she died, I went to like what I would describe as probably the darkest place that I've ever been because I I just, she actually died of an undiagnosed blood clot. So it struck really close to home. (laughs) And sometimes it's just amazing the levels of irony that that can happen in life. Yes. And, you know, so it was kind of very shocking to have that happen and realize that, you know, now I'm 26 and she was 26 and I could just die from a blood clot and and just missing her incredibly because I felt like she was I, I don't have any siblings, but I felt like she was my sister. Yeah. You know, and having that just ripped out from my life of this person that I had a deep connection. And where did you find the help for that? Was that in therapy? Yeah, the therapy was really, it helped me move from that place of basically where I felt like I was giving up on life. I I remember after she died and being overwhelmed by my diagnosis, it was like, I just laid in bed for like days and like, I wouldn't take my medicine. I hardly was eating. I was just like, I don't want to live anymore. Thank you so much for talking about this. It's something that I don't think a lot of people are willing to talk about is grief and depression. And aside from when, when someone who's close to us dies, there's also a level of grief and depression that happens just from chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And I don't think enough of us talk openly about it and it leaves people feeling much more lonely and and Mm -hmm. isolated and all this. Thank you. That's wonderful for you to talk about this. I think it's really important for people to know that, you know, you're not alone in that process of it it is a trauma. It is it brings depression. It brings grief to be given a diagnosis. And, you know, I don't think that's something that really doctors factor in. You know, maybe they send you to a support group, but that's about it. That's that gets factored into the fact that, you know, this your emotional well-being is now also compromised I guess I would say that and also your entire sense of who you were your security in being in a body that you're assuming is supposed to be doing certain things that it is now decided not not to right (laughs) and you had said also about that you had been a graduate student working towards a history PhD is this when you had uh, when your diagnosis decided you were going to be doing something else with your life (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was I tried to kind of fit myself into this mold I was like in the program for about three years when I first got the diagnosis and then I kind of kept trying to force myself down the path that I was pretty clear on one level it wasn't right and then when my friend died, like that, and the therapy, like that was my my real realization. Like, okay, what am I doing with my life? This is really not what I want to be doing with my life. So, where did your diagnosis lead you after that? What what path did you end up on? So it was actually through that process of biofeedback. And then I actually started my, my therapist sent me to this yoga for healing class, which at first I was like, I don't know if it's for like people who are really flexible and like want to sweat. And, and that, that wasn't what this class was like both of those experiences for me opened me up and made me realize that when I started to feel better, I actually wanted to learn how to do these things that were helping me. And so I started training and and kind of going down the path of alternative medicine myself. 
So is that what you're doing now? You had mentioned clients, and I, I didn't know what your, your business was. I knew you were an author. I did not know what, what you do. Yeah. So I actually, I started out doing, teaching therapeutic yoga and doing biofeedback. And then about probably five or six years ago now, I encountered another healing modality that was called body talk. And I got tremendously fascinated with that. And that has become kind of my main work in the world is helping clients through this particular healing modality that helped me. And then I trained in. See, I hear body talk and I think about my body just going, fuck you. (laughs) Absolutely not. Not going to do it. I mean, I think body talk and I just think of a toddler throwing a temper tantrum. I think of my body and what it would say. So I need more of an explanation of what body talk is. Sure. I I find it really interesting, too, that our founder chose to name the system that because I think it creates certain like, you know, some people really resonate with it. And then some (laughs) people think, you know, my body is going to say, fuck you. Yeah, I'm an evil, snarky bitch sometimes. So I I would go for that one. (laughs) So the system is really it's very different from a lot of other healing systems because it's based on trying to understand like what our body is trying to communicate through our symptoms and through our illness. So it's it's like tuning in to the story behind the symptoms. And like in my situation, like this didn't actually, even though it felt like it came out of the blue, there were things that led up to it. You know, there was all of the kind of repressed three years of being miserable in my academic program right before I got the diagnosis. And you know, there were, there's just like a whole bunch of layers that basically build up. And then for me, I felt like it was my body decided to scream at me, like, what are you doing in this program that you hate? And you keep saying you don't want to do it, but you keep doing it. So the modality is really about kind of, instead of looking at kind of what's the problem, it's not a diagnostic kind of approach to working with people. It's about understanding instead, like what wants to be seen and healed in the process. It's interesting because like, I feel like academia, I, I had been going for my uh, master's in English literature when everything went really far south. Um, and there's a way of just you feel like you're just on a, a hamster wheel sometimes when it comes to academia. Like you're already putting in this much money and this much time. And the only yes. way to like get to the end of the hamster wheel would just to be become a teacher. But that just means you get onto the other wheel. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I kind of, for me, I think I went because I didn't really want to be a grown up. Like I viewed <laughs> a job after yeah, college. I wasn't going to say it that way, but thank you for saying it that way. It is a good way to avoid adulting is to go to a PhD program. <laughs> it, it is. And some people are like, you know, they would much prefer the other. Like that seems much worse. But for me, I was like getting a job like right after college. I was like, oh God, that's too scary. I can't go get a job. Like, but maybe I could like go to graduate school school and delay the inevitable Peter Pan University here we come (laughs) exactly so you know I went down this path and then you know immediately it felt like it was not aligned like I, I was like what am I doing here like all these people around me are all excited about all these books we're reading and I'm like um I'm reading I'm like basically required to read 2,000 pages a week how is that possible Oh, I remember those days. (laughs) You're like, you know, you have these 500 page books and you have to read one for each of your four classes. And you're like, um, how, huh? 
how am I supposed to read all of these things and, you know, go teach the classes that I'm supposed to teach as a teaching assistant and, you know, like just go to the bathroom and eat. (laughs) Well, then adding on to that, that you're also in the middle of being sick and getting, going through that whole world. Was that something, because when you actually had like the swelling, that was something slightly visible, but were you able to get across to teachers and students that there was a problem and that they needed to lighten up a little bit, or was that not an issue for you? Um, sometimes it felt like it, you know, like it, it got forgotten, you know, in the beginning it was like, oh, you have this diagnosis of leukemia. Oh, you know, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, I was treated kind of with, with some care in the beginning, but then after a while it just kind of was like, well, why are you not keeping up? What, you know, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Why can't you keep up with all of the things that we're throwing at you? Even with the, the false leukemia diagnosis, they still were, were pressuring you. Wow. <laughs> and even after my friend, like the, I think the nail in the coffin for me was after my friend's death, it was like, I felt like it was maybe a month or six weeks after, like, why are you not back to normal? And I'm like, because I just had a huge loss. I've never understood that un- that idea that you would ever go back to what was normal before everything changed. Like, everything yeah. changed, therefore there's got, got to be a new normal. Right. There does, but, you know, I think for them, for some reason, their perspective is it's like, well, you should still be able to keep up and function, and it's like, but I'm still trying to figure out what does this mean for me? And, you know, my peers don't have to go to all these doctor's appointments and get their blood taken all the time. And, you know, it's, it's like how, like, there's a whole other job now that I have. Oh, my goodness. Yes. For anyone who is not in sick world, the amount of time you will spend in doctor's offices, in testing offices and calling your insurance company, like you could have a 30 hour week job just doing that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The insurance company thing for sure, too. I mean, like when things don't get billed correctly and you have to like (laughs) with that, it's like, oh, you you hit one of my little raw nerves there this week. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's like a full time job. And then you're like trying to do whether you're working or, you know, going to school like I was, you're like trying to keep up with all the other things that you had to do before. And it's like, I don't have. I have less energy, not more. (laughs) (laughs) That, yes, very true. I I felt like even after I filled out my disability paperwork, like if anyone was able to do that without help, maybe you weren't as disabled. Like it took my mother and I working through this for like 30 hours a week just to get through all the paperwork that you have to get through. And then with insurance companies, oh my God, I would not be able to make it through without my mom. Again, props for all mothers of chronically ill adult (laughs) children. (laughs) Huge, huge thank yous. Um, what is it that you're worried about with your disorder in the future? Is it something that will get progressively worse, or is it something that should, will it stay the same? Um, you know, for me, I think it's like they don't really know. The interesting thing is is that polycythemia vera tends to be more an older person's disease, so it's not something that is typically a 25-year-old would have seen develop at that age so there's not really a whole lot of information about like what does that look like for somebody that gets it at a young age you know usually when somebody gets it at an older age it's like well they're towards the end of their lifespan anyway. <laughs> so you know 
there's just not really a lot of information as far as what does that look like. And has that changed any of your plans? I, like for for me, I'd known I was sick for a very long time with um, increasing lack of mobility. So I started traveling as quick as I could. Is mm-hmm. Has your um, kind of question mark prognosis changed how you're doing things? Not necessarily. I mean, I feel like I just try and, you know, live life to the fullest. And, you know, I, I'm just a big advocate for myself in terms of doing all of the extra things I can in terms of alternative healing to keep myself healthy, because I feel like they really support me and, and thriving in the way I want to. So I try not to live in that place of, you know, being completely afraid of the unknown. Because I don't know. (laughs) And writing a book. Yes. (laughs) And do you have any ideas when that's going to be coming out? Or are you in the middle of the process? Um, I'm hoping sometime maybe in May. It's it's in the the kind of final editing stages, and then I need to do some of the design work as far as the cover and and the inside. I'm self publishing, so it has its own process. <laughs> self publishing is a very interesting world. I've I've done two books self published, and it's uh, I like it actually, but the design work can be intense. I'm actually, I've decided, I'm like, I don't really want to learn how to do this other thing. So I have somebody that I'm going to be working with, but it just sort of depends. Like all people, when they ask, I'm like, well, it sort of depends on, you know, like when the person I hire can get, you know, how much work do they have before they get to the job for me? Well, congratulations on that. Is there anything that you would like to tell the listeners about things that have helped or... I usually, I, my favorite question is anything that you purchased for under $100 that has really helped you? Um, for me, I don't know that there's anything that I've purchased. I think it's more just kind of prioritizing self-care. And that's something that I'm always a big advocate about with people is just like finding the things for you that help you. Like stress is such a, a big contributor to illness and also making illness worse so if we can find ways to just have less stress (laughs) then it really can help manage a lot of the symptoms so whether that just be like I used to teach people breathing a lot when I first started my business because it doesn't even require any equipment it just requires you I'm a big fan of that. I actually use the um, Calm app on my Apple Watch, and it will remind me to breathe in a certain way, like, every few hours. Nice. Yeah. Technology is so amazing in how it gives us the reminders now (laughs) of things that we don't think of. It's, um, I'm a big fan of it. It even reminds me when I've been still for too long. So I guess I'll I'll fill in for you. It was not under $100, but the Apple Watch is really great for reminding you to meditate and stand up. And, you know, I mean, there's even just great, like, free tools there as far as meditation. Like, I love there's an app called Insight Timer, and you can get, like, thousands and thousands of meditations, like, any kind of meditation you might be curious about. And you can just, you know, listen to them all for free, which is free is great. (laughs) Big fan of free. Absolutely. And if you hate a particular meditation five minutes in, you're like, I didn't pay any money for this. Like, I'm just going to find something different. I I will be trying that. I will um, link this and link your book and also link Body Talk. Is there anything else that you'd like me to put in the show notes? Um... I don't think so. I think, you know, I, I think those are probably the main things that we kind of shared about that might be good resources for people. Excellent. Well, 
thank you so much and congratulations on the new book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, this is a really fun episode to record. I hope you join us next week. And seriously, please um, share us with friends, family, um, anyone you want to understand chronic illness a little bit better. I'm going to put out a little bit of a warning, especially for anyone who is directly DNA blood related to me. (laughs) Um, Next week's episode is someone who actually can swear more than I can. So huge props and impressive. It's also going to be one of our most controversial interviews. Um, I hope you join us. I really enjoy talking to this person, even though uh, he and I did not see eye to eye on a lot of things. Um, He is a really interesting person and his viewpoints on his um, chronic illness is something I've never heard before, which is why I really wanted to interview him. Um, Please tune in or, hey, if you don't want to hear all that, don't or listen to one of our older episodes. But I really recommend just giving it a try. All right. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to go curl back up and try to get rid of this flu. And I will hopefully have you guys come back next week. Thank you so much. And hey, uh, be kind, be gentle and be a badass.